Hi, I am Kate Sheehan Roach with Pro Social Spirituality, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and I want to thank you for joining us for season three of the podcast. So without further ado, I would like to welcome my very, very special guest, none other than Kate Sheehan Roach. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Oh, thank you so much, Will. It is great to be here with you. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. And you and I had the chance to spend eight weeks together going through pro-social spirituality, which we'll talk about in just a second. But what I was really, I think, most captivated by was your consistency. You were so gracious, so open. And the way that you facilitated our group with these very heavy principles, I mean, this information isn't, isn't just like kindergarten stuff. This is like deep information. But the way that you facilitated it and made it so accessible really left me in a place of awe and inspiration and gave me exactly what I needed to be able to implement these principles into my everyday living. So I want to say thank you for that. And that was kind of my introduction into what you do, which is pro-social spirituality. So what is that? Wow. Well, well, thank you. I'll tell you, it's, it's an honor to hear that from you because what you brought to those eight weeks was everything. That's what makes our gatherings so rich is that amazing individuals like you commit to eight Zoom sessions to come together and um, and learn a new framework. That's really what pro-social spirituality is. It's simply a framework that um, we can uh, use guiding principles and elements of spirituality to, um, to build a new way, to, to build a future that is based on uh, organizational leadership and spiritual principles of, of a universal nature that apply to all faiths and none, really. Um, but this this particular uh, group that you and I did together was was uh, an amazing cohort of people from the Charter for Compassion. So people who are already, um, you know, ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing the need to cultivate compassion in the world today. But how often? do we have that aspiration and realize it's easier said than done that we have lofty goals. I can remember times in my life where that was my mantra, cultivate, cultivate compassion, cultivate compassion, cultivate compassion. I knew that I needed to be intentional about that. Um, But so many times I could be great at that in, in one arena of my life and then not in others, or I could see this polarized country and, polarized world we're living in and recognize that it's might be easy to have compassionate attitudes toward people I agree with, but maybe less so for people on the other side of the spectrum or people who I perceive as doing harm. But, but you and I know that, you know, compassion doesn't discriminate, that compassion is a condition of the heart that has to be cultivated, developed, and, uh, and embraced. So that's a big part of pro-social spirituality. And I can, I can tell you a little bit about the background on it. Before we get to the background of the material, I want to understand a bit more about how you came to this. And I, I love how you just defined compassion. I, I think that that's simply beautiful. And so we'll, we'll definitely make a quote of that. But what brought you into this space? Wow. Well, I've been collaborating um, for, for over a decade now with people who are committed to cultivating the contemplative dimension of life, the inner life. So I was part of founding a web magazine called Contemplative Journal, and I've really committed um, my work to supporting some of the great spiritual teachers of our day. So those can be from 
my faith tradition of Christianity, or I work with Sufi leaders and uh, Jewish leaders and Hindu leaders, and um, not just leaders, but but all of us uh, who are who are taking our faith um, into the world in 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 an applied way. Um, but also, in order to do that, we know we have to cultivate our inner life. We have to spend that same um, degree of commitment in um, contemplative practices, just embracing the silence, allowing that transformation to, to take place in, in our hearts and in our minds. Before we can begin to change the world, we have to, you know, like Gandhi sort of said, it's a little bit of a paraphrase of Gandhiji, but the idea of being the change, becoming the change. So that inner life. So, so it's really my work with contemplativelife.org where I collaborate with uh, my good friend, Jeff Janung, um, that p- began partnering with pro-social world. Um, so pro-social spirituality is actually a collaborative venture between contemplativelife.org and prosocial.world. So, um, it's, it's sort of the, the best way, the quickest way I can describe it is this sort of where the, the, the inner life meets outer change. So contemplative life being the, the, the cultivating a deep inner life that sometimes we like to look at on sort of a vertical plane, this idea of being deeply grounded in your faith tradition and also transcendent to that which is larger than, than we. So this, this vertical plane, and then there's this horizontal plane of, of social cohesion. Um, you know, I think it's, it's also oh perfect will that, that you and I are recording today on the day we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and his ongoing work in the world. Um, perfect example of a person who was both deeply grounded and transcendent on the vertical plane and also profoundly gifted as an organizer, as a leader, and as as an as an administrator, that the, even those basic, um, w- you know, without those those skills, um, he would not have had the following and the success and uh, really the truly miraculous transformation that that he led and continues to lead posthumously. Um, so that that's a I just I feel that connection with uh, you know one of the great outliers of uh, of history. And that's sort of what this what this work attracts. It it looks at um, some of the evolutionary uh, evolutionary leaders, you know, people who were ahead of their time, and how did they get that way? How did they do what they did? And we sort of break that down and and train it and and emulate it and and cultivate it in our own lives. What have you found most difficult? about making that connection, about taking that inner work out and actually truly uh, embodying compassion in a world where there are some people that are a little tougher uh, to coexist with than others. And, and here's what I mean. In, in this day, we, we know how divided our nation appears. We know that, uh, particularly in the political arena, people aren't even concerned about fact or truth or reality. It's their party, their tribe versus the other tribe. So how, how do you find uh, your place in this and what's been most difficult for you personally about its application? <laughs> wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> you don't you don't throw softballs, do you? Um, um, you know, I can I can be very adept at this. Uh, you know, in my service work, in my in my professional life, it comes down to home. It comes down to you know, raising teenagers, being married, having siblings. Um, you know, that I think to just in in real honesty, that's that's the place where I have to be my most authentic self in order to really cultivate this. But I think, you know, what what I what I want to share is um, some amazing practices that help with this. You know from from our eight weeks together that um, the the co-founder of pro-social spirituality, uh, Reverend Diane Burke, is an amazing, um, spiritual leader and teacher uh, who also has a, a, a background in psychology, 
sociology and anthropology. So she's just this amazing people person and um, truly, truly gifted spiritual leader. And uh, one of the practices that she brings to pro-social spirituality is a loving kindness or metta practice that we practice together regularly through, through the eight week journey and hopefully beyond. The idea is to try some of these practices on and, and keep them as part of your daily life. But, but the loving kindness practice is a really simple practice that we, that we do daily um, or a couple times a week, depending how it, how it fits for you. But it's, it's very simple and it starts out um, with the emphasis on the self, you know, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be at peace, may my life have ease. You know, it's a, it's a very simple sort of rhythmic mantra. And then from there, we share that same thought of expression with somebody we love, could be our beloved, could be our, our, our dear ones in some way, but somebody, you know, very easy to love. And then from where, from there, we extend that to someone very difficult to love. That could be a, a family member, that could be a political figure, that could be an entire um, community. It can be, um, you know, whatever it is that you feel that tug, that difficulty that, you know, it doesn't come naturally, but you choose, you choose to cultivate that regardless. And then finally, the fourth phase of the practice is for the whole world and all sentient beings, all of creation. And you can mix this up. You can, you can change it around. Um, you can, you can bring in, um, you know, the planet and, and the waters. And I mean, it, it, it's, it depends on your intention, but we really recognize that without these practices, we lack the rootedness, the groundedness to be able to actually live it in the world. So I know for myself, if I'm going to be in a challenging situation, if I'm going to be, um, you know, traveling to a, a, a part of the world where I don't really fit in or something along those lines, um, I best really, you know, start my day with my practices that bring on, that, that set me in the right mindset of humility, of receptivity, of, of, um, of, of, of the grace that comes from cultivating the inner life where we recognize that we're all one. That is really the place for me where the deeper I go, the more I realize that we all, um, we're all interconnected and we really are all one. And so it's, it, it, it helps me not otherize or even otherize myself, uh, you know, in a way that is, um, you know, at all, arrogant and privileged and, um, and really foolish because it, there, there is no grounds for that in reality. The things that you, you said are, everything you said was powerful. Like I'm, I'm just sitting here like, yes, yes. But two things really stood out for me. One was the, the direct answer to the question, which is, you know, at home, like it's my family, like that's where it's toughest, but also the way that you frame the other. So often we otherize others, but we can otherize ourselves and elevate ourselves and, and forget that we have some of the same challenges that we find difficult in others. Um, one of the practices I like is the just at, just like me meditation. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I'll say, you know, such and such is a person just like me, just make it just that basic. And they have feelings just like me. And, you know, you expand it out similar to the loving kindness meditation. And I find that that's really, really helpful. But I, again, I'm just profoundly struck by otherizing yourself. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Hmm. Wow. I just kind of spontaneously um, blurted that out, but I think it's less about specifics. It's less about saying, well, I'm better or I'm worse or I'm um, it's, it's the idea of separation. It's the illusion of separation. The idea that I could be somehow um, that I could thrive and my neighbor not thrive or that my neighbor can thrive and not I thrive. I mean, the, the idea of, um, again, perfect on the day we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., this, this, this fabric, this interconnected web that we are all a part of, um, is, it, it, it's, it is reality. It is the truth of our existence. And so it's, it's the othering that is, that is false. 
So I think, I think we do that. I do that when I fail to recognize myself as a whole being, when I'm somehow seeing myself as my wounds or as my brokenness, instead of saying, yes, I'm wounded and I'm broken, but I am a whole being. And in my wholeness, I meet you in your wholeness and I can meet my neighbor in her wholeness. And uh, I live in Philadelphia, which is a fascinating place where I sit here at my desk and looking out over the window and, um, and I can see the world go by and um, the amazing uh, intermingling of communities here. We have um, Orthodox Jewish uh, we're, we're within the boundaries of, of the synagogue. So lots of Orthodox Jewish families and these big houses have lots of big Catholic families with, you know, they each have five, six, seven kids. And, you know, then we have, um, uh, wonderful Muslim community right, right on the corner. And, um, you know, there's, there's just, you name it is all here in Philadelphia. So it's, you know, the, the, the city that was founded on brotherly love and sisterly affection, um, it, it is most vibrant where it is most complete and it is most complete where it is most diverse, like biodiversity. We're experiencing that here. So that's, you know, these, these are our, our goals. These are models, but we don't see it everywhere. And so we have to be intentional. We can't just have ideals that are not met. And I think that's the other thing that drew me into this. You asked me sort of, you know, how I, how I came into this indeed wanting to cultivate the inner life. Um, you know, I think some of the critics in my, uh, in, 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 in my past would say, oh, well, you know, that all that meditation and all that, that's just so selfish. You know, you're just all about, you know, hiding in a cave well, I've got news for you. It's the opposite. When, when, when you cultivate that inner strength, the first thing you want to do is change the world, is be out there in a giving capacity. Um, there's more to give when, when, when you, you cultivate that. So, so it's a, it's a um, contemplation and action are two sides of the same coin. And that's where, you know, this contemplative side, this vertical dimension needs, desperately needs the horizontal side in order to, in order to be effective. We know lots of spiritual communities that have all sorts of, you know, depth and breadth and, um, and wonderful, um, ideals. But if the communication skills are lacking, if there's a lack of equity, if there's a lack of, um, you know, just organization, um, we're going to see, we're going to see trouble. So, so that's the idea is to sort of bring together the strengths of the inner, cultivating contemplatives and then the, and also the change makers, the outer activist change makers, bring it together in, in a program that we can actually take scientifically derived evolutionary principles and, and put them on, put them on like a suit of clothes. Let me ask this. Do you feel as though and first I'll say yes to everything you just said. Um, do you feel as though it, it's a place of privilege to be able to put on these principles and these practices? You know, I think on the one hand, it is in that we do this as a program, you know, in the way that we're cultivating it. Yeah, we've got the technologies, we've got the time, we've got the resources, you know, that kind of thing. But, but in reality, it's people I know. I know a guy who lives in a bus who does all this in his, in his bus community. I mean, it's, it's a neat group up in the Adirondacks. They've just gotten old burned out buses and, and turned them into homes. And it's, it's like a little, it's like a little village. Um, but he's, he's applying these principles as well or better than, you know, people, people of, of greater financial privilege. He has privilege of community. He has privilege of wisdom. He has um, he has all sorts of of creativity that I think um, you know we get confused if we. It, I think the definition of privilege, I guess, is what it is. Or um, you know that that I think there's a lot of people that have um, you know the means to do things, but they're actually quite impoverished when it comes to you know um, having the heart space to actually do this work. So, you know, 
in so many ways, we have a lot to learn um, from some of the least likely places is where these these uh, pro-social, you know, the idea of pro-social is, you know, kind of the opposite of anti-social. You know, the idea of being deliberately um, perfect for the theme of your podcast, you know, compassionate Las Vegas, you know, that this, this intentional choice to be compassionate um, is a, is a intentionally pro-social behavior. And I find, I see that in places that might not be considered, um, you know, you don't see a lot of that maybe on, on wall street, wall street's considered this place of privilege. I know there are, there are some, and there are, there are, there are um, flickering lights of, of compassion and love everywhere. But um, but it's in it's in the prisons, it's in the twelve step groups, it's in the you know my my friend who lives in a bus. Um, I see them actually embracing this in ways that we could you know we can emulate and take this to the corporate world and offer it as a training. Um, but we've got nothing on the people who are using this as their you know their one hour of interaction in between uh, in a prison sentence where they may or may not ever see the light of day outside of prison walls, that they're still committed to cultivating the good. To me, that is, that's the leading edge. That's where um, we can really, we can really put this um, in practice. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that you answered that in the way that you did. I didn't expect anything different. Like, <laughs> you know, there was not, I'm not surprised, but I just, I, I'm still, you know, gleaning so much from it with, with the challenges we face. What I, I see is um, perhaps our, our greatest challenge as a global culture is we don't necessarily recognize the, the value of other, of different. And sometimes I think that, you know, I'm grateful I'm an American. I was born and raised in America, you know, all of the, the required disclaimers, right? But by the same token, I, I find it difficult to say that America is the best place on earth. And here's what I mean by that. I've traveled to Africa and to Europe. I've, those are the only other continents I've been to, but I found such beauty and such richness in those places, uh, Africa in particular, visiting mud hut villages in West Ghana, you know, seeing, seeing people that did not have access to plumbing or electricity, but the joy was electric and the community, the bonds that they shared were stronger than any fortified building we could create. There's, there's something there that you can't buy. There's something there that material wealth just doesn't offer. And so I'm grateful for some of the luxuries like the Zoom chat that we're doing. We couldn't do this without electricity and technology. So I'm grateful for that. And I, I just struggle with saying this is the best. I, I appreciate it, but... I think it's one of many amazing things. Does that make sense? Oh, well, you're, you're absolutely, you know, and it, it's once again, I love, I love how this unfolds because um, I always say nothing is what it appears, you know, it's often the flip and, and what you're, what you're giving me an opportunity to share is the flip behind pro-social spirituality that, yeah, indeed, we're going to offer, we're offering this um, thanks to a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust um, and, and other work with the John Templeton Foundation that, yes, we do have um, the ability to do this, but really where it began, we're borrowing from those places of inspiration, like your mud hut villages in Ghana. And I'll, I'll tell you why, it's because that's really where pro-social spirituality begins. Um, the, the, the two streams that I talked about, um, the, the first I'll, I'll tell you about pro-social is, uh, is a global research project. That's where, why we continue to do research as even part of our trainings, we're still engaged in, in, in research because the pro-social world is based upon um, a discovery made by a woman named Eleanor Ostrom who won the Nobel Prize, she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics for her discovery 
of common resource usage that is sustainable in the world. If you took you know, Econ 101 at some point in, in college or elsewhere, you, you learned um, about the tragedy of the commons, this long held idea that human beings left to our own devices will overexploit resources. You know, we see it all the time, land over overuse, fisheries being abused, the, the, the air we breathe, we see it all the time. We very easy to just say, yep, we need regulation. We need private ownership. We need to, we need to take human nature out of the equation and, and tear this down. Well, guess what? Lynn Ostrom being the outlier that she was uh, recognized that there was no research to back this up and being a brilliant researcher as she was, she created the world's largest global database, global database of small communities that were not living out the tragedy of the commons. They were actually using common resources successfully. They weren't overexploiting the land. They had found ways to live in harmony with one another. And these are the things that you know inspire us when we travel, when we go to go, go around the world. We see things that hmm, wait, that's not what they taught me in sixth grade social studies class. They had this you know this attitude of American exceptionalism. Well, travel, and you'll soon be broken of that. Well, Lynn did the same thing. She, she was able to, to tabulate this amazing global uh, database and with the technologies uh, that, that we have, was able to, to study it down, to recognize that in these instances where the tragedy of the commons was not the order of the day, eight principles were present. And she was able to sort of delineate them, draw them out. They're not rocket science. They're, they're, they're important things, things like conflict management, sharing of resources, having a shared purpose. They're not rocket science, but she was able to draw out these eight and won the Nobel Prize in economics because she had basically dismantled the tragedy of the commons. Fast forward a little bit or overlapping, um, she began collaborating with David Sloan Wilson, who is an extraordinary evolutionary biologist, remarkable career as a Darwinian evolutionary biologist, but not the survival of the fittest um, model only, but also the survival of the species and multi-level evolution, evolutionary theory, where David has been an outlier in his field, recognizing that indeed on an individual level, it's survival of the fittest, but in groups, and I'll just paraphrase this, I'll make it quick. It's the survival of the kindest. It's those who cooperate and collaborate and recognize that we're all one. Those groups thrive. They take the evolutionary high ground over those who want to dominate. This is, this is earth shattering. This changes the whole scene. And the question is, can we bring Eleanor Ostrom and David Sloan Wilson together and say, okay, can we take these principles that have been discovered in nature, basically humans being the, the subjects, um, and can we, can we apply it? Can we apply it to our communities and have the same outcome, have successful outcomes? So that's just that, you know, there's so much more to talk about there, but it's leading edge science, research-based, and it continues. We're continuing to study, even as we're talking right now, we're, 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 uh, we're pushing out the, pushing out the, the boundaries on, on, on these conversations. Quickly, to the, to the other side, to the, to the side of, of spirituality, Wayne Teasdale, was this outlier who delineated nine elements of a universal spirituality. So think Lynn Ostrom is, is our, is our uh, pro-social leader posthumously. She died a few years ago, but she's still, her legacy lives on. Wayne Teasdale, same scenario. He, he died several years ago, um, but he had written a book in 1999 called The Mystic Heart which uh, Jeff Janong calls it a forward pass into the 21st century. It's sort of exactly what we needed. And these nine elements of a universal spirituality that he discovered in his global travels and in his experience as an interspiritual monk. He was, he was of the Catholic tradition. He was ordained in the Catholic tradition, but he was also ordained in the Hindu tradition as a sannyasi, as a wandering monk. So he was this multi um, multi-faith person who also was able to experience the, the spiritual practices of all the world's traditions. And again, an amazing outlier who never met a stranger and was, you know, uh, truly um, able to, um, to lead us 
into the 21st century, where now we can see where he was heading, that indeed we're recognizing that with globalization, um, we don't have to just tolerate one another. We don't have to just sort of find one another fascinating. Um, We can actually come alongside one another and respectfully learn from one another. That's the point of the nine elements of universal spirituality. So it's these 17 points that we bring together and simply just use them as a framework. It's not a prescription. It's not a, it's not a, uh, there's, there's no doctrine or dogma being taught. There's no, um, I mean, you know, there were no answers. It's all questions. It's all exploration, but the ability to apply it in your work, in your community, in your family, in the world is truly becoming that activist that, that is, you know, you may be inspired in the wee hours of the morning when you can't sleep, you wake up knowing that there's pain in the world, there's suffering in the world. How do I live in this world? How can I, how can I face another day when I know um, there's so much suffering and, and how can I be compassionate without just being destroyed? We need frameworks. We need frameworks. We need community. Um, Compassionate Las Vegas is a perfect example of that. I am blown away, absolutely blown away by the city of Las Vegas. And what I see happening there um, gives me great hope. And, and so um, I want to I study what you're doing. I want to turn the tables and ask you. And, and as a participant in pro-social spirituality, I would like to ask you, do you see some of these principles coming into play in, in your experience? Yeah. So thank you. Now I'm, I'm on the hot seat. Uh, it's, it's, thank you for, you know, acknowledging what Vegas is doing because I'm extraordinarily proud of my city. Um, the, the thing I think that allows us to do some of this in the way that we're doing it is our relative inexperience. We are a very, very young city. We haven't existed for very long in the grand scheme of things. So we don't have some of those institutional barriers or, well, we've always done it this way. This is why you're doing it because we've always done it this way. We don't have that in a lot of spaces. So it gives us the opportunity to really reinvent and try. And that's what Vegas is is about. Going back to Elvis, right? He was able to reinvent himself here and then countless others in, in the entertainment sphere. So take that into any other arena and it's happening. What I will say is the other part is we don't have some of those um, barriers of consciousness where people don't believe it's possible. So we're in the middle of a desert. We're literally a bowl, <laughs> you know, a, a desert bowl. And yet you'll find some of the most amazing nature and um, the technology advances and, and you just name it. it. It's amazing the life that is in this place that's supposed to be a desert. So I, I just think there's, there's a number of factors, but the number one piece is we have the opportunity to really exist within the time frame we are in. Um, in my experience, so right now under my roof, there are three generations, my grandparents, my mother, and then myself and my husband. And so it's just fascinating some of the things my grandparents think about. Tangent, but I'm coming back to the point, I promise. We have been looking for a home for them because they're considering relocating from Michigan to Las Vegas to be with us. And my grandfather went to a model home and said, oh, they probably need to have like a four inch buffer here in case it floods. And we just kind of giggled like, well, it's it's not going to flood. Like, it's okay. You don't need that. But based on his experience and the life that he's lived 80 plus years, he's used to doing things a certain way and needing to create certain protocols in order to thrive. And in this new world, it doesn't necessarily fit. And I think that pro-social spirituality is similar where we've had some of these mind ideas, mind traps, thinking traps that we're like, people are a certain way, or this is the way it has to be done because if we don't, it'll fall apart. And the science, the evidence is actually to the contrary. So uh, that was a really long way to say, Vegas is able to innovate 
because our people are innovative. We really are uh, growing by leaps and bounds constantly, but we're not afraid to try something. And, wow. and that's what makes us able to move forward. Well, that is a great, I, I thank you for letting me put you on the, on the hot seat there for a second, because I, I honestly have been, um, you know, just astounded. And, and, but what I also see is that um, it's very intentional. It's not, yes. nothing is a given that people are uh, strategic, thoughtful, collaborative, like this could, you, Vegas could be a, a study, could, you know, if Lynn Ostrom were still with us, she could look and see and, 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 and tabulate the data on how this is coming to pass. It's not a coincidence. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm amazed by that, but I'm, but I'm curious. I mean, some of the things that we look at in, in, in pro-social spirituality, you know, we we're we're looking at things like humility and simplicity and nonviolence, self-knowledge, um, you know, having a, having a, a moral um, base, um, you know, that, that those are just a few on the spiritual side, you know, and, and I already mentioned a few on, on the pro-social side, you know, just things like, um, uh, conflict resolution, um, fair sharing of resources, um, having a, having a clear, um, purpose and mission and identity, um, things like that, that, that when, when we put them together, um, I mean, the, the classic example I, I hear about sometimes in, in spiritual circles, you know, people are, are becoming so aware that this idea of, of the, the, the global marketplace, where, um, you know, the, the classic example is sort of how the West has just um, pounced on, on yoga and has sort of appropriated it into Western ways and pretty much trampled on the, the teachings that, that really come with, uh, with yoga. And, and it's, it's generally, you know, um, white people of privilege just waltzing into brown communities and saying, oh, I'm a yoga master now, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's, there's problems with this. There's some serious, you know, maybe not intentional, but regardless, um, I'm hearing these conversations coming up where, where, you know, people are, are being outed on this. And so the answer <laughs> very um, beautifully stated is, you know, we must approach this global oneness with humility that 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 by the quality of humility shifts from appropriation to honor you know that that is possible and everyone says ah oh, isn't that lovely <laughs> and then we say okay so you're gonna flip a switch and be humble tomorrow <laughs> like, it doesn't work that way humility is something that has is it's a it's a it's a character trait that has to be cultivated and has to be intentionally learned and developed. Um, you know, simplicity, we all say, Oh yes, life, you know, live simply so that others may simply live such a trite and lovely thing. Well, Wayne Teasdale wrote very boldly uh, in, in, in his book, the mystic heart where, where these nine elements were, uh, were first revealed. He just said, you know, if you don't know what simplicity is, you're just playing around in the spiritual life. And that stopped me cold because I don't think I knew what simplicity was. I grew, I was, you know, I was born into the eighties, the you know, things were complicated. Um, you know, I, I didn't embrace simplicity as part of my, my journey that was never on the radar. So that's why I value looking at a framework where I'm going to be challenged to, grow in areas I need to grow and recognize that, um, you know, it's a process. There's no, there's no, um, no shame, no, um, no blame, but, you know, um, once we know better, we know better. With this work, because it is certainly work, what I find uh, perhaps most inspiring is the fact that it's systematic. So my brain works in, in the way where you, you have a task list, like you check boxes, you, you go from point A to point B. Uh, that's just you know how I'm wired. I understand people are different. 
Um, but because there's a framework and you use the word intentional, because you can be intentional with this, to me, that means it's scalable and you can reproduce it in various settings. So that makes it something tangible for really anyone to grasp, making it universal, which is what I think is, is key. This idea of globalization or unity or oneness has been around since the beginning of time. But there is also a fear of erasure that I have seen. Mm. And I wonder how your work addresses that, where groups that perhaps are more uh, accustomed to being the majority or being empowered um, are now finding themselves feeling disenfranchised uh, when really they're experiencing equality or heading towards even equity. Um, how do you address that in your work? Mm, wow. Well, that's a big one. And I appreciate it. I think you and I are going to need to talk some more um, about this, but I think, well, well, what, what we, what you witnessed as, as you came through the eight week program is that um, although it is systematic and there is a, there is a curriculum with a, with, with a framework um, we engage the heart. It's, it's really the most important learning doesn't happen in the brain. It happens in the heart. And, and so, um, I mean, you remember the first session, we introduce all these points and there's a lot of tons of information. And then all of a sudden the conversation stops, screen changes and up comes Tracy Chapman singing change, the song change. Would you change? If you saw the face of God in love, would you change? Would you change? And that challenge to change on the level of the heart is, is different. It's, 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 there's a quality to it that is, um, that opens people up so that their, their defensiveness is really what, you know, this, this whole idea of, um, you know, defending the turf or somehow, um, being fearful of, of change is, um, is broken down. We use a lot of poetry, a lot of music, a lot of art um, to try to shift the consciousness away from um, models, the old models. The old models have to go. They're going, they're crumbling before our eyes. And so I, I like um, the, the quote I sometimes think of is uh, the, the wonderful, uh, spiritual and architectural genius, Buckminster Fuller, who talked about when you want to create something new in the world, I'm going to paraphrase him, you know, um, don't worry about dismantling the existing infrastructure, create a new one that makes the old one obsolete. And so what I'm keenly aware of is that it's these elements that really, it's the, it's the nine elements and the eight core design principles that were discovered in, a, in, in global reality that are really the facilitators of this work. I'm showing up, presenting it. Diane Burke has you know, built this beautiful curriculum, but it's really who we hand it to. It becomes theirs. And so what's really important is, um, you know, it, it, is that we recognize that, um, this is not to be um, owned, you know, it's to be shared. It's to be, it's, so the, the beauty of it is that um, when people recognize it as, as core, um, it, it's growing so fast and, and traveling globally. We're already, um, pro-social world is translating into Spanish and Portuguese. Um, there's a huge movement in India. Like it's, it's not, um, just and Australia is a big, a, a big base as well. Um, but really across the globe because of the universality uh, of this, of these principles that they're organically discovered. They're not sort of top down being imposed on anybody. It's sort of what works in the, in the great experiment that is life. And where has it worked and, and for whom instead of this idea that there's a, there's a, there's an elite that is going to top down impose itself 
that has been completely turned upside down. And the idea is open source, you know, put it out there. And uh, thankfully, we have, the, like I said, the support of the Templeton Foundation, um, whose main mission is, you know, to, to ask the big questions, the big unanswerable questions using science and spirituality. So we, we kind of fit right into that because it's all an experiment. It's all unfolding. I always say the ink never dries <laughs> at, at pro-social and pro-social spirituality. It's, it's as soon as we, we land on something, it evolves because we are evolving creatures and hallelujah, let's evolve already. <laughs> and evolution is, is constant. <laughs> that's, that's the amazing thing about, about that. That's the one constant change. Exactly. Uh, in our last few moments together, I just want to ask something a, a little different than what we've talked about. And that's what is inspiring you right now? And I want to frame it around music. So what song or, or body of, of work is, is providing you inspiration and moving you forward in the world today? Mm. So much. I'm a big music listener. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a song that was new to me that, that we, we used at the, uh, the final session of Pro-Social Spirituality um, called The Underlying Unseen Song. And it's an artist I didn't know before. I'm sorry, I can't remember her name right now, but it's something that Diane brought. Um, and the idea was if we're quiet enough, we can hear the silence, the bird song, the unspeakable truths that are underlying all that we do, this, this contemplative dimension that is unspoken, that is beyond words. Um, so I was inspired by that particular piece of music um, to listen to the birds, to let the bird song be my, um, my, my soundtrack of my life here in Philadelphia. Um, but so many other pieces that we share as part of, um, you know, as 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 part of the the, the program. I think I think people really enjoyed um, a piece I grabbed, just a, just a segment of a song um, by the the Irish band U2, little little rock band out of Ireland, <laughs> known as U2, um, where the where the the end of the song, the chorus is, there is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. And Bono and, and, and the boys get the, get the whole crowd singing. There is no them. There is no them. There's only us. There's only us. So those messages that can be conveyed poetically and even the music of the birds carries a message that words can't capture, really. Poetry and art and um and some of the more, you know, sublime um, works of, of classical music. Um, Diane and I have been talking a lot about uh, Beethoven and Bach and Mozart lately about carving out time to really listen to these pieces. Um, it couldn't be, it, it, that's the contemplative dimension. That's what we, if we don't cultivate that, we are not full, we're, 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 I am not my whole self if I don't cultivate so thank you for asking that. I, I'm always the one, um, you know, trying to remind um, others to, to slow down and listen. And, um, and that song, the underlying unseen song, really um, captured that for me. I, both the pieces you mentioned, I was really moved by. And my Christmas gift to myself this year was to create a space in my home where I could actually listen to music. I used to produce music and actually own a record label and all that kind of thing back in another life. And uh, But since being in Vegas, I've been so involved in other activities that I had lost touch with that. So I made that space for myself and it's... It's just been amazing. So those songs are going in the rotation for sure. Uh, if you would finish these, these thoughts for me, I'll, I'll say a word or two and you finish it. Uh, we'll start with, I am. Hopeful. Mm -hmm. I am hopeful. Love is. Never ending. Mm -hmm. 
The most powerful thing in the world is. Grace. Last one. Compassion matters because. It's so very necessary. So very necessary. Okay, I want to thank you for taking this time to, to spend with me and all of our listeners and viewers. Um, you're right, we've got to do this again. There's so much more we could get into, but I think that we at least have introduced this amazing, amazing uh, thing for, for our, our viewers and listeners. How do folks get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Well, um, I'd love to hear from people. Personally, I'm at kate at contemplativelife.org um, and um, prosocial.world is, is the website where you can see us or contemplativelife.org. That's the collaborative uh, partnering of contemplative life and prosocial world is where prosocial spiritually pro-social spirituality exists. We're, like I said, we're currently um, operating under the, the uh, Templeton Religion Trust grant. So we're able to offer pro-social spirituality um, trainings without a, without a fee right now as part of this research initiative. So I'd love to hear from people if you're part of a group that might be interested in doing an eight-week training. Um, just drop me an email, katecontemplativelife.org. Awesome. And I want to give you the final thought because you just had such a wealth of information and grace. Uh, what What is your final word for our podcast today. Mm. Be of good cheer. Um, I know there's so, um, so much suffering in the world. You know, that's what the word compassion means. Suffer together, come together and, and uh, come alongside one another. Um, but for every, for every bit of suffering, there is a, a blanket of love around it. We can wrap our arms around one another and, and, uh, and, and help one another through. Um, that's, that's what keeps me going. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy, but be of good cheer. Leave it there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Will. So great to be with you.